Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. We're recording this live on April 21st, 2022. It's episode 242. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. And a great good evening to you, sir. Great good evening to you, sir, as well. We've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about how top reviews, not average ratings, are going to sway consumer decision making. Later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about representation and UX research, transitioning into the field and getting a mentor, and how to apply for jobs. But first, Barry, what's going on over at 1202? So at 12.02 this week, we are interviewing Chris Reed, who is the current president of HFES. And so we're quite really looking forward to chatting to him because maybe he can give, give me some pointers about how to do my presidency next year. But also on Sunday, we go in on tour. Uh, so for the first time, we're taking 1202 out on the road and we, or more precisely, we're going to Birmingham for the second phase of the CIHF Ergonomics Conference. Not entirely sure if, what's going to happen, if I'm brutally honest, but it's going to be a learning experience for all involved. Well, that sounds awesome. Uh, and and we know Chris. We know Chris. He's been on the show. We do the town friend halls of the with him. Yeah, friend of the show. Uh, so th- I'm, I'm excited for that episode and excited to see what comes out of your trip. But uh, we know why everyone else is here. They're here for the news. So let's get into it. That's right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. Barry, what is our news story this week? So this week, a study has found that top reviews, not average ratings, sway customer decision-making. So when you're shopping on your favorite online store, it generally has the usual things, a a picture, a title, a description, as well as obviously things like the price and shipping. Many also have customer feedback. It has a star rating and some sort of qualitative review, something that you've typed in what uh, what you thought of the product. Collective wisdom dictates that consumers gravitate towards the highest rated products. The difference between a four-star average rating and a four-and-a-half-star average rating could potentially play a massive role when uh, buyers are trying to decide to hit that add-to-cart button. But recently, uh, a recently accepted research paper from a USF uh, Murmur College, a business researcher, shows that the half-star chasm may not be all that important. It turns out the top reviews carry way more sway in a customer's final buying decision when they're comparing products. This research debunks a widely held notion that serious online consumers buy products with a higher star rating. So, Nick, is this a five-star article for you, or do you want to throw some shade in your review? You know what? I think this is a a four-and-a-half-star article for me, but I did read a review of this article that I thought, uh, you know, really changed my mind on it. But look, like, this is an interesting one to me because we haven't really done much on the consumer purchasing side here uh, on the podcast, and this one will get us a little out of our comfort zone. It's less human factors, more marketing, but there's a lot of overlap and some interesting psychology that happens behind decision-making. So we thought it was a good kind of springboard. Um, but yeah, it's it's really, when it comes down to it, it's communication. It's how do we communicate with others about products and how do we interpret other people's signals about those products? But Barry, what are your kind of initial thoughts on the article? Yes, yeah, I think it's interesting because not only at its most basic about how we how we interpret things and, and um, make them sort of decisions, or, but it's also about the assumptions about what our shopping habits are. Um, that I think we, you know, it, as it states in the article, you think you're going to do that, you you take all this information, but actually we might 
we might not be. For my own personal preference, I go, I look at the stars first and see if they've got a high number of stars. And then I go and look at the top reviews. But then I, I also look at the bottom reviews for the people who maybe had a bad experience to sort of balance them off. And then also, we, you know, people game, the game reviews as well, don't they? The, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to. But um, it's interesting. I think, yes, you're right. It's, it is out of our comfort zone. So we'll probably wander around the shop a bit tonight. Um, but there's definitely some bits that I think we need to pull in and, um, and get, get into the nitty gritty of. Yeah, I mean, let's start with kind of bring let's let's bring this human factors perspective to it, right? Let's talk about decision making. There's a lot of psychology that goes into decision making, um, and we could talk about some of these, right? We have like past experiences, cognitive biases, escalation of commitment, sunk outcomes, and you have individual differences and personal personal relevance. And so, I think we could dig into each one of those and talk a little bit about some of the context. Uh, for how these impact our decision making. Barry, do you want to start with uh, past experiences here? Yeah, because past experiences can really impact future decision making. So the way it goes into influencing the decisions people make in the future, it stands to reason that when something positive results from a decision, people are more likely to make to decide in a similar fashion in the future. On the other hand, people tend to avoid repeating making past mistakes. So if you've made a uh, if you made a purchase and you've um, it's gone badly for you, you're not likely to go and do that uh, make that same purchase again. In financial decision making, highly successful people do not make investment decisions based on past sunk outcomes, but rather by examining choices with no regard for past experience. This approach conflicts with what basically what we just talked about, what we what we may expect. So, Nick, do you want to dive into cognitive biases? Yeah. So, you know, even even with those past experiences, there's some things going on in your head that are biasing you uh, and influencing your decision making here. So what cognitive biases are, just to remind everyone, are kind of these thinking patterns uh, based on some observations and generalizations that might actually not be true. They kind of are memory errors as they're coming up. And so what what's happening um, here is that you're making inaccurate judgments. Uh, based on kind of faulty logic. Um, and so th what this can manifest itself as is, is kind of, um, it, it, there's a couple different ways in which cognitive biases manifest, but here's here's a couple to name a few, right? So belief bias, the over-dependence on prior knowledge in arriving at decisions. There's hindsight bias, which people tend to readily explain an, an event that was as inevitable once it has happened. There's omission bias, where people have a propensity to omit information perceived as risky and confirmation bias in which people observe what they expect in observation. So these are a couple biases in which you can take into uh, decision-making processes. Um, so it's kind of that self-fulfilling prophecy outcome uh, determinism thing. You know, if you, if you think something's going to happen and you make the decision to make that thing happen, then ha, I knew it was going to happen. It happened. Um, and so that's kind of what cogn cognitive biases play into uh, that, you know, they do influence kind of these poor decisions, um, but they really do. We'll talk about heuristics later. And so that, that's kind of when this works is these yeah. cognitive biases. So just take that with a grain of salt. We can make bad decisions, but we can also make good decisions based on those two. Barry, uh, talk a little bit about escalation of commitment and sunk outcomes. Yeah, so in addition to the past experiences and the cognitive biases, decision-making may be influenced by an escalation of commitment and sunk outcomes, which are unrecoverable costs. Um, 
Julianson, Carlson and Garling in 2005 concluded that people make decisions based on an irrational escalation of commitment. That is, individuals invest larger amounts of time, money and effort into a decision which they feel committed. Further, people will tend to con uh, continue to make risky decisions when they feel responsible for some cost, time, money and effort spent on the project. As a result, decision making may at times be influenced by how far in the hole the individual feels they are. Nick, do you want to dive into then uh, individual differences? Yeah, let's get into it. So, you know, obviously with any person, there's going to be different things about that person. You have age, which is a big one, right? Life experience. Uh, you know, let's not call it age. Let's call it life experience. The older we get, the more experience we have with living. Um, and so we might take different <laughs> things into decision making with that experience. Um, we also have things like socioeconomic status, right? Especially when you're talking about purchasing a product, let's say on a, uh, a massive retailer on the web, um, you might be more inclined to buy a less expensive option or be more swayed to buy a more expensive option if, let's say, there are certain things about it that are uh, aspects of that are qualities like durable, right? Uh, so you're not wasting your money. Anyway, that's what socioeconomic status brings into it. But basically what we're talking about here with decision making is that these differences between us... Um, they really do influence decision making. So, you know, uh, one sort of we talked about age here, but that sort of um, th there's a there's a, I guess, uh, widely. <laughs> I don't even know how to say this. Our, our minds kind of decline as we age. Um, and so <laughs> with that, that might be um, as you're trying to make, let's say, larger decisions you, you need some assistance with. And so I'm, I'm trying to be really nice around this um, because I will be of an aging population one day too. So, uh, you know, older, old, older people may be overconfident when you think about their ability to make decisions, which ultimately might um, inhibit their ability to apply some of these strategies. And then, you know, there's also some evidence to support the notion that older adults, adults actually prefer fewer choices. Uh, than younger adults. And so it, it's kind of that whole choice paralysis thing. Uh, if you give somebody too many choices, you know, it might be yeah. too much for them to pick. There's also the socioeconomic status, right? And and um, especially that, that correlates with uh, education resources, which might actually leave them more susceptible to uh, e experiencing negative life events. Um, and so, and these are often beyond their control. It's society as a whole is is kind of uh, implementing these experiences on them. Um, and so they, they might make poor decisions based on some of these other past decisions that they've made, uh, which can, it, it's a self-fulfilling circle in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but everyone is different. You want to talk about a little bit about personal relevance and what it means to individuals? Yeah, so personal relevance is is that belief in what they decide actually matters. And if they believe what they decide actually matters, they're more likely to make a decision. So when that analyzing individual voting patterns, uh, people vote more readily when they believe their opinion is indicative of the attitudes of the general population, as well as when they have regard for their own importance in the outcome. So people vote when they believe their vote counts. Um, this was pointed out where this, uh, and this voting phenomenon is quite ironic. When more people vote, the individual vote counts less in electoral math, um, something that's very pertinent for, for me right now. Um, 
but it, it but that is quite true we see that all the time there is in, in there is a lot of apathy at the moment generally around the world where people don't want to vote because they don't feel that they can actually have an um, an input um their, their vote doesn't count for anything and therefore what's the point yep yeah all these things right so I, I mentioned heuristics before I want to get back into that and really that's when cognitive biases perform well right? Heuristics are kind of, uh, they're shortcuts. So when you're looking at these um, decision-making strategies, people are using, um, especially in, in situations where you have sort of very little information to operate on, um, heuristics can often be very correct. Uh, and, and like I said, these are kind of mental shortcuts that reduce the the cognitive load, so to speak, when you are trying to make these decisions. And so um, you know, it really works in a couple different ways. It, it's kind of um, allowing the user to scrutinize um, a, a, a few different signals or alternative choices rather than, um, you know, everything, right? Instead of weighing the pros and cons of every single thing about whatever the decision is, you're just operating off of a few of them. And so you have to make a call. Um, ultimately, right there, uh, heuristics are diminishing the work of retrieving and storing information in the brain. And so that, again, is reducing that cognitive load. And lastly, kind of streamlining all this stuff um, reduces the amount of integrated information that a human needs to make the correct choice uh, or to pass judgment. And so, um, you know, all this stuff altogether, this is heuristics. These are involved in decision-making all the time, all over the place, and they range. Um, so there are some very, very specific heuristics that you can get into, and there are some very, very broad ones that you can get to, and and they also serve various functions. Let's talk a little bit about heuristics. Barry, let's, what was this first one here? This was very relevant to our uh, discussion today. Yes, very much. So the first one is the price heuristic. Um, in, in essence, people judge anything that is higher priced items, they have to have higher quality. Lower priced things, it is specific to, to um, consumer patterns, while the outrage heuristic, which people consider how contemptible the crime is when decision on uh, deciding on a punishment. So yeah, basically, when you have that, that price heuristic, if it's, if it's higher priced, then you deem it to have higher quality, therefore you're, more go you're going to go for that um, as you go. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there, we messed up the show notes here. Be transparent. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different heuristics, right? There's there's the price heuristic. There's also this one that you mentioned, uh, the outrage heuristic. Then there's also other important heuristics like uh, representative availability and anchoring uh, and adjustment. And I think these have been heard um, in psych 101 for many folks, but, you know, for some folks who might be coming from the engineering side or the design side of the house, let's get into some of these. Um, the first one up here is the representative uh, heuristic. And so oftentimes in a lot of these heuristics, it's kind of based on um, convenience and speed of being able to make a decision with these heuristics in mind. And with this representative heuristic, we're looking at um, sort of this, it is an economical heuristic when you think about um, you have these things that are recognizable. People are, are they tend to choose that recognizable thing um, because they are familiar with it. It's, it's kind of, you're not putting in a whole lot of effort to understand what it is. Um, it's, it's really difficult to uh, sort of research and answer definitively if a, 
individual is using this representative heuristic alone, but we kind of think that it exists, right? Or, um, or if they're using if they're using it alone, or using it in conjunction with another uh, type of um, piece of information that they're drawing a conclusion from, and so there's some mixed research on representative heuristic, and so. Uh, Basically, what it comes down to is sort of this um, recognition, uh, memory being memory of the decision option, if if you will, being recognizable, uh, perceptive, reliable, and um, more accurate than chance alone. So those are attributes about the choice. Um, let's see here. What else about the representative heuristic? We're looking at uh, another conflicting piece of evidence here. Um, people don't solely rely on this recognition piece alone. Uh, they're, they're thinking that, you know, sound recognition might, uh, be a larger player when they're using this for additional information. Although when that comes to consumer reviews, I don't know how much sound plays into it other than like actual reviews, uh, like on, like you might find on YouTube or something. Um, availability heuristic is a little bit easier. Barry, you want to talk about that one? I'll take the easy one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> According to this heuristic, people are inclined to retrieve information that is it, it's most readily available in making making a decision. Interesting. It's an important heuristic, as it's a basis for many of our judgments and decisions. For example, when people are asked to read a list, then identify names from the list. Often, the names identified are names of the famous individuals with which the participants are familiar. In the field of medicine. Um, that people Redlimer was Red. Oh, I can't pronounce Redlimer. Um, charged that mis mis medical diagnoses are often attributable attributable to heuristics. The availability heuristic being one of those responsible. They explained that heuristics are beneficial as they're cognitively economical, but caution clinicians and practitioners that they need to recognise when heuristics need to be overridden in favor of more comprehensive decision-making processes. So having that idea that, yes, you can use the heuristics, but also knowing where the um, the heuristic may not work properly and recognizing that fact and knowing when you've got to basically go, go back to basics again. So, Nick, do you want to take us into anchoring and adjustment? Yeah, this will kind of be the last one that we're talking about tonight uh, in terms of heuristics and decision-making, but this one's anchoring and adjustment uh, heuristic. And so this is kind of, um, this is... Uh, where you need some sort of value, right? And and this, I think, is what's happening uh, with the other aspect of consumer reviews, which we can talk about in the article discussion piece, but specifically when it comes to STARS. Um, so, like, some of the discussion around this article is that STARS still make a difference, right? Or overall rating still makes a difference, but the actual reviews themselves are different. So let's let's talk about this anchoring and adjustment heuristic because I think it'll be important for later. Um, basically, this is whenever there's a value attached, um, they are the person making the decision is being anchored to that value, uh, whichever's presented to them to begin with, right? So. Um, Let's 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 use an example, right? So if if uh, we were to talk about in what year did John F. Kennedy take office? This is one for us here in the states. Um, you you might use this anchoring and adjustment heuristic where you you can think about um, a known date. So like when did they get assassinated? Um, and so you can think about that November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, and then from there you can kind of 
how many years back, right? And so that anchoring, um, you are you're making an estimate based off a piece of known information um, about that person, but it may not be uh, an anchor that is close enough to the thing that you need, right? So the practical application here is honestly when you're when you're thinking about negotiations for salary. Um, and the counter offers are based on that anchor that you set. So if they ask you, what is your uh, preferred salary? You give them a number and they will adjust based on that or vice versa. That's why oftentimes they will ask you what you want for your salary because then they anchor off of your decision. So really what you need to ask and push on is <laughs> what's the what's the base salary that you're hoping to you know get away with here? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things and and especially when it comes to making mistakes when decision-making, there's a lot there uh, because folks will likely gravitate towards that anchor that they've put in place, right? So if someone lowballs you and says like, I don't know, 30,000 US dollars, that's pretty low, um, no matter what field you're in. And so, uh, you know, if you're, if you say, okay, well, 35, well, that's 5,000 more than 30, but it's still low. Um, But you might think it's more because you're anchored to 30,000. Uh, so, so anyway, kind of getting back to that heuristic, right? It it requires um, a lot of effort, uh, and so it, it to to get out of, and so it it takes a lot of. Um, it, it's important to think about that when trying to avoid anchor bias. So we talked a little bit about sort of these uh, cognitive human factors issues when it comes to decision making, but let's kind of bring it back to the article. Let's talk a little bit about consumer decisions. Really here, this is a mix of human factors and usability, uh, and there's a lot going on here. Barry, you want to break it down for us? Yeah, and we, we can go through this relatively quickly, I think, but the it sort of breaks down into sort of four or five different areas. The, the first one being, and so some of it will be repeating what we've already said, around, around psychological factors. So around your, the motivation about why you're making uh, the, these sort of decisions in the first place, the perception of what it, what, you, what it is you think you're getting, the learning, and the attitudes and beliefs around not only you but the uh, the environment that you're um, the, that you're buying it in. You then also got your you dive into the social factors of what we're talking about. So it's we as um, as human beings, uh, we, we live around people. We, we, we tend to like to congregate. And so really, if you're trying to buy something, you'll take um, some of that influence from, from your family, um, a local reference group, which might be your work group or uh, some sort of social group, and also any roles and status that you've got. Um, so that, that could be you know, your, your local chapter of the HFES, for example. Um, then you've got cultural factors. So it's not only just the culture you live in, but actually the subcultures that exist. And depending on, on where you're at, how much, how much social class has to play. Um, but then it's also, it's a, it's a very personal choice. So there's a bunch of personal factors that come into play. So we've talked about it before, it's age or rather life experience, um, the income that you have and the, the occupation that you've got, the lifestyle that you lead. And then finally, and I guess it's probably um, quite key to a consumer decision is, can you afford it? Uh, those economic factors. So you've got your personal income. If it's a big purchase, how you know how does the family income come into play? Have you got any credit? Have you got liquid assets? And have you got savings? So that's been a very quick rattle through them. But they're also the, the key elements that come in and help us make um, or certainly influence how we will make, make consumer consumer decisions. 
Yeah, I mean, it really is kind of a multifaceted approach to making these decisions. And when you break it down with how many different things are going through your mind at one point, not only are you faced with all these different attributes and factors that are coming into the decision making process of whether or not you need this product, uh, what you know, you, you, you mentioned it, right, the motivation, perception, all these things. Um, but then also, can you afford it? Uh, and then all these all these heuristics stacked on top of that. Um, that's a whole nother layer, right? This, this whole decision-making process. So there's a lot going on here. What we're talking about tonight is really coming down to what other people say about a product is more influential, um, than maybe an average review. So really, um, I thought let's kind of get back to the article here. And I, I want to, I want to talk specifically about this because that anchoring bias is going to be kind of key here with some of the points that I want to bring up that the article talked about. So the uh, one of the authors of the article here said it's the top it's the text at the top reviews that made a difference. The swaying effect only happened for the text reviews. Without text, people were not swayed. It's the concrete details that are driving this impact. Uh, so the research is not saying that average ratings don't matter. If a product had a low average rating, consumers will not consider the product. Uh, much less read the product reviews. But in cases where the buyers were comparing different products and reading their reviews, a few of the top reviews can easily sway their purchase decisions. Um, adding that the he also added that the the study findings are not limited to app or product reviews. And so um, you know, there's some key takeaways for retailers. But I just want to pause there. That's a lot of of kind of key takeaways here, right? So we're we're when we talk about uh, heuristics and anchoring, that's exactly what's happening. When you see a one-star review, you're anchored to that one-star review. Yep. No review that you read will change your mind on it, regardless of what, how positive that review is. But if you, if you think about the difference between a half star at the higher end, uh, it doesn't really matter that much because you're reading more detailed reviews about those products and whichever one you find more helpful, whichever one has more detail, that's what you're going to stick with. That's a huge point for decision-making. Um, because it it does get at some of those other factors that we talked about, especially some of the psychological factors. I think it'd be really interesting to try to do a review. And I've kicked around this idea before of Human Factors Cast actually doing reviews. It'd be interesting to make sure that we touch on a lot of these different points, right? Like, what is your motivation for buying it? What's your perception of it? Like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I find it fascinating. Barry, what, what, um, some of the talking points that you want to take away from this article? So there's, there's some, I, I think, factual bits that we need to, um, maybe dive into. We've, we focused on, on Amazon, um, for this, but obviously there are other, others out there, as the article does mention. Uh, one of the things that I, you know, things like TripAdvisor and things like that use similar, um, similar mechanisms. But the interesting, an interesting thing about, um, on Amazon was there was an, another article um, that came through that we found in Wired um, magazine where in 2015, Amazon began weighting stars using a proprietary uh, machine learning model. Now, some reviews now count more than others in the total average, basing on factors like how recent how recent they are, where they came from, where they came from verified purchases, meaning that Amazon could actually um, say that the reviewer had actually bought the item that they claimed to love or hate. And um, people who write about um, Amazon believe that Amazon also takes into account consideration things like the age of the reviewer's account 
and the average star rating, they usually leave. So if they usually leave a three stars for everything, if they leave a five star, then that means something more. So, and there, there also appears to, appears to be some sort of discount um, applied to reviews who predominantly leave negative reviews. So even just looking at the, that basic review mechanism, um, a star isn't, a, isn't just a star. Um, we are being manipulated in the background, I think. So um, when we're making these decisions, that's you know that that's quite interesting the other bit that i think is quite interesting with this as well is you know you have a five star rating system whenever we do um, any sort of rating your, your your central which is your okay um which is like perfectly fine is three is your middle um and that should be the standard anything above that is amazing anything below that is bad yet with the star system we are constantly being pushed to go to the five star it should always be always be that and you you know uh, we constantly go you know go for that five five star look when we when we try to discern it so is the star system the, the right method for truly um from our perspective um discerning that um um the the, the right measure i think yeah and it really comes down to uh, this is a larger discussion about products themselves um there's like what goes into a review uh we've talked about all these psychological factors here but it's it the the experience can be largely subjective when it comes to pieces of art, right? So like, let's say you purchase um, some piece of entertainment, uh, so like a movie or a video game or music or something. And so reviews on that, I'd be interested in sort of how the star system or just some sort of numeric rating system really impacts those. Because if you think about something like a video game, uh, I, I use that as an example because you have sort of this large um thing to explore not only is it a, a it's a piece of art but you're also exploring it in a way that perhaps other people are not uh you might experience something that somebody else doesn't and that might resonate more with your personal experiences than somebody else and it's just it, it's insanely fascinating to me when you start thinking about ratings and um reviews for uh larger complex things that require more thought and effort to put into them, right? Because a lot of people just want to slap a score on it and call it done. You bring up a good point with the stars, right? Like, um, like out of 10, I know, uh, IGN, uh, a gaming site uses sevens as their base mm -hmm. because you know, anything it's like five to 10 really is their rating, but it's out of 10. And so it has to be really, really bad for it to be a one. Um, I, I just find it fascinating. I, I want to talk about some key takeaways here um, for potentially retailers or anyone trying to sort of uh, bring this into practice here. There's um, sort of this, I don't know if it's an ongoing effort by retailers to uh, game the system by um, sort of providing people with money for these fake reviews. Uh, so it doesn't really make sense to do that because people aren't, especially with products that are already kind of rated highly, uh, doesn't make sense to do because people are just going to read the ones that are more detailed and that's going to ultimately sway their decision. Um, the, really, the author says here, they really shouldn't spend a whole lot of time gaming these rating systems. The effort is not actually very meaningful or effective uh, based on our findings. Our findings suggest that as long as your average reviews were fine, uh, what matters is the top reviews. So you might um, 
there's there's another way that you can game the system. Pay people to like a certain review that favorably, uh, you, you know, puts your product in a favorable light. And so that might be uh, the new way to game the system based on this research. Um, any anything else? Any other points that you want to bring up here? Um, I guess the the interesting thing for us, well, the interesting thing for us will be um, if people are going to rate the podcast and and give us favorable reviews, having read uh, read our uh, in depth piece here and and what they bring out of it. Um, but researchers have also recommended online review platforms such as Yelp and Amazon really could benefit consumers by designing a layout that spotlights individual reviews with less emphasis on on average rating. So that's given some, I guess, that's some that UX input. Uh, into how into how we could put some of these uh put some of these sites together and make the most out of reviews. Yeah, and I do I do want to say you you stole my thunder there, Barry. I was going to ask everyone listening. There's a call to action here, everybody. We're talking about reviews because we obviously want you to rate the podcast. Um, no, but seriously, I I, I think uh, there are there are some good ones out there. If you want to make those top reviews, you can, or you can review. That's fine too. Um, <laughs> there's one comment here on um on Twitch re-expectation there are similar expectations with classroom feedback um a three-star review is considered bad for instructors and i think i know that's fairly commonplace in uh in in several different um domains so like cashiers also get rated the same way if it's not a five star it's bad uh and so this there's this like weird uh, skewing of ratings and we hold so much importance on it and really ultimately it just doesn't matter. Um, one last time, Barry. Any closing thoughts here? Um, no, I think we've pretty much captured that all together, this one. All right. Well, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at the University of South Florida for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog you can also join us on our discord for more discussion on these stories we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this human factors cast brings you the best in human factors news interviews conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce but we can't do it without you the human factors cast network is 100 listener supported all the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving. So stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you. And remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our Patreon patrons. Especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors Cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Uh, and it really does mean a whole lot to us. Now, we're going to ask you for more. Um, I know <laughs> I don't like asking for more, but we just made some purchases behind the scenes that are going to make things really, really cool around here. Uh, and we need money to do so. I'm out of pocket again. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. You don't have to... <laughs> Look, if you have the financial means and want to, you can. Um, but we are reinvesting that money into the show. I need you to know that none of that goes into the pocket uh, of of Barry or myself. Although I I, I uh, suspect that Barry might be siphoning some off to pay for his electric vehicle. I don't know. That's only, kind of been only, a only if it turns up. 
Yeah, that's been a rumor. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do want to say there's another way to support the show. If you can't do Patreon, you can always go to our merch store. Um, we have some fun things over there, like our It Depends shirts. I've worn this one so much. I'm wearing one tonight. Uh, I've worn this one so much. It started to fade. Um, it's not anything to do with the quality of shirt. It just is... Uh, I've, I've worn it a lot. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a show logo, obviously. Um, speaking of reviews, you can get our worst review ever that we've got uh, in the form of a t-shirt. I'm thinking about wearing that to HFES this year, um, our, our, our one-star review. So if you want to support the show uh, and look good doing so, um, we have stickers over there too. If you want an it depends sticker or like I'm gonna human factors the shit out of this, we have that over there too. There's a there's a bunch of cool designs over there. And we're always trying to make more. So uh that's another way to support the show. Anyway, um I think it's time that we look out to the community and uh get into this next part of the show we like to call. It came from It came from That's right. This is it came from this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, give us a like or whatever uh, heart, wherever you're listening, watching, doesn't matter. Help other people find this content. Really, that's what we're looking for here. Um, I do want to make one kind of quick shout out. We mentioned this in the pre-show, but we got some traction on the Human Factors subreddit this week when somebody asked about uh, which Human Factors podcast or book recommendations do you have. We we jumped in kindly and said, Hey, there's two, you can listen. There's three, you can listen to there's human factors, uh, podcast. There's 1202, the human factors podcast, and there's human factors minute. If you want to support the show again with that theme. Uh, so we don't really ask a whole lot of our human factors cast army, but if you do want to go onto that post and give it a like and boost, uh, we would certainly appreciate that. Anyway, we got three for you tonight. Uh, this first one here comes from, Xenaxia. I hope I said that right well on, on the user experience research subreddit, one that we don't typically frequent, but might more now um, that I fixed the bot. They, they're asking specifically about representativity and qualitative UX research. Greetings. Uh, I'm learning a bit about representativity and changing the way I recruit users accordingly. I was reading Think Like a UX Researcher and saw this statement. I'm going to truncate here. Um, engaging a representative sample of participants in UX research sounds like a good idea, but it's flawed. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, theoretical sampling provides a more practical alternative. It's a long quote. Anyway, this was, a, this was quite an eye-opener for me because where we work, I often aim for a representative sample rather than a focused sample. Me being a junior UX researcher, uh, changing my recruiting because I read something in a book will probably not be taken kindly, though, uh, especially since I work at an agency. We sometimes just do one day of user testing a product, and that's all we ever do for a product. So aiming uh, might seem dangerous. Uh, I'm curious about uh, your opinion or personal experience about screening for users and whether this is just a radical idea or if there's a lot of truth to it. Barry, let's talk about representation in UX research. What is your experience with it? Um, what do you do? So from my experience, I come from a slightly odd background working primarily in the defense side of things. I kind of take what I'm given. Um, and it, it is a bit of a get out in, to a certain extent, but we do try and do what we can to get um, as representative as we possibly can. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, I've worked in some platforms where literally everybody's out 
operating the platform, the people you get are the people who are just happen to be uh, like on side a, a shore or, or whatever the case may be. I do think that you try, certainly from my perspective, um, try and get the um, the edge cases as best as we can. Um, certainly when you're talking about physical um, type of product as well to make sure that you can do the fit form function ideas. Um, just so, yeah, I think... I'm, I'm, I can wimp out of this one to a certain extent by I don't normally have I don't normally have the luxury of, of of choosing. I do think it's right with what they say. You know, in the agile environment, the agile environment sometimes I think gets used as a slight excuse for this, but because um, if the agile environment is stopping you from doing what you need to do, then you need to change how you're how you've customized agile. But um, fundamentally, I get I get what they're saying that um, you know it can seem very fast paced, and you, we don't have the time to do things necessarily how us, us in a human factors perspective would do it. And this is one of the, I think the differences between human factors and UX potentially is because um, I think UX can can get away with this to a certain extent uh, with, with the way they do it. So yeah, I think for me this is a it's it, it's it's an it depends, and I want to push the big red button. Uh, push the big red button. For me, I think uh, this this um, it's really inter- uh, uh, opens up an interesting discussion because I think there's kind of for me there's three levels. Um, there's and it's all speed accuracy trade off. If you have uh, access to some users is better than access to no users, but having a UX person on hand is better than not having anyone on hand. And so you have like um, kind of these various steps that you can take. Step one, hire a UX or human factors person. Step two, get users. If you can't get users, then rely on the expertise of the human factors person. Uh, if you can't get users, but you can get subject matter experts, that is where we're kind of talking about this other piece of, you know, easy access to people that are familiar with domain that can provide answers that you're looking for. Uh, so that's kind of um, a preference over no users, although actual users is better when we get all the way up to the the cream of the crop uh we're looking at you know a representative sample of real users across uh various different domains that you're looking at right or or various different companies whatever whatever it is that you're measuring um that's kind of where we're at is that representative sample uh and and that's the best but i think the point here is that it doesn't always work when you have internal processes and procedures that are trying to uh, encourage you to get feedback quickly. And so when it does come to UX or sort of these uh, companies that engage in agile style processes, you're looking at sort of what can you get quickly that's going to give you enough information to get by? Um, Is it going to be the best solution? Probably not because you haven't talked to everybody, Um, but it's going to be good enough. And I think that good enough approach is kind of what uh, industry UX or industry human factors is pushing a lot of the time. Um, any other thoughts on that one, Barry? Um, I guess I would just repeat something that you said in previous uh, pre- previous episodes as well. Is is pick your battles. Um, sometimes, yes, you might it might be an, a nice opportunity just to um, you know save some of your resource because we generally have limited resource and things like that as well. Um, so if, if it's one, if it's part of a, an engagement that actually you've got more important things to be thinking about, there might be more fundamental issues you want to solve. You might want to pick your battles in that as well. Yeah. Um, all right. This next one here is about transitioning into UX, landing a first job and finding a mentor. 
This is by uh, WonderfulQuality34 on the user experience subreddit. There's some backstory here, but I'm going to skip straight to the questions because I think these questions are kind of self-explanatory and are pretty great. So there's three of them here. First one question is, uh, what is the best way to gain work experience? Is it pro bono design work? Some other way. Uh, second question is, what should I expect as an applicant when applying an entry level or intern generalist position? And three, finding a mentor that has a similar career path. How do you find those? And so with those three questions, let's break them down one by one. Barry, what is the best way to gain work experience uh, for someone who's potentially uh, getting into UX uh, for the first time? I suggest you go and get some work experience. Um, <laughs> it's it's a tough it's a tough one. I don't necessarily always agree with it's it's a lot of people will say you know go and get that go and get that voluntary work and things like that. That's not it isn't everything that you can get. But sometimes you know you, it, it 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 works. But get yourself out there and get some. Try and find them entry level positions. They're not always uh, all there. Uh, as you're going through your degree or your your training, try and try and Try and engage with some companies at that point, particularly if you get some industrial placement or something in something like that. Make the most of any of the, any sort of opportunity you've got to engage with um, industry or anything like that, because that they might be willing to give you some early ins um, and maybe some holiday work and things like that that will uh, do that. Um, where the voluntary work does co come in, my, my fear with voluntary work to a certain, certain extent is you don't necessarily get the drive and the um the pressure um of having to get work done on time to a certain level of quality um because with pro, uh, pro bono work or you know voluntary work um sometimes you know you just can't be uh, you can't come under that same pressure but anything is better than nothing i would also suggest that you go and i don't know look up a good um a, a good design lab or so, some sort of voluntary lab they're, they're normally quite good to do i don't know if you know of any nick that might be um might be worthwhile looking at Wow. You you almost took my answer there. We have the Human Factors <laughs> Cast Digital Media Lab. You can look, that is pro bono work. I mean, and you're right. There is not uh, uh, um, sort of that external pressure to perform well or to, um, th th although that doesn't, I, I only take people that perform well. We have great lab members, but um, the, we the provide that pressure. We, we could provide that pressure, but we don't. We're, we're very <laughs> lax in the lab uh, for, for good reason. Um, but yes, I think they're there. Uh, and I've gone over some of these examples before. Um, go out looking for existing problems and try to solve them. Use those to pad your portfolio. It doesn't have to be, you know, you can send them to him if you want. But uh, I, I really need to make a class on this because this, this is one of the most common questions. Um, and it's not real world experience or it can't. It can be um, real world experience if you do it correctly. And so anyway, uh, look for problems where they exist and try to solve them. Um, and that might be a good way to flex your skills. Uh, find those examples. Second question here, what should I expect as an applicant when applying at an entry level or intern generalist position? This one kind of goes very good with the next question. So maybe we'll skip that one for now and get back to it in a second. Last one here, finding a mentor that has a similar career path. How do you find those Barry? So certainly in the in the UK side of things, my first port of call would be the Chartered Institute of Economics and Human Factors. They who run mentorship programs and set you up with um, with people probably not in your own company, but people alongside who can then help you and work you through with that. So that would be my my first port of call. 
But when I when I have new members of people, uh, new members join my teams, I generally try and find them a mentor, um, particularly if they're new to industry. Um, and I will generally try and find people who will work with them who are not um, not part of my company. I will generally go out and. It doesn't actually matter if we're in this in the same field, really. Though I do, it is helpful to know that they worked in the defence field before. Um, but fundamentally, you're looking at, at people who will try to match what you're what, what you're doing and basically nudge you in the right direction. And it, some just because you get put in front of a mentor doesn't necessarily mean you have to take them. Um, it ha- the relationship has to work, um, and that's probably the biggest thing. Um, I would take out of this just because somebody said they'll stick their hand up and be a mentor doesn't necessarily mean they're the right person for you because you've got to have that person who is a shoulder to cry on when things are going bad and and help pick you up type thing when you're maybe not feeling at your best but also when you're um when you've done some really great work they'll be the ones to help um applaud you and 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 sort of channel that into into something good um but then there are also the people that you want to be able to go and say actually maybe things at work aren't going so well how can i approach my boss etc etc so they they become your confident uh confidant mm-hmm. as well as anything else and so you, it, it's not a friendship though you, uh, there's a good chance a friendship will evolve it is a professional relationship but it is so to get if you get a really good mentor um early on then then it's absolutely invaluable so Talk to people. Uh, like I say, in the UK, go to the uh, go to the CIHF. They will sort you out. Um, I don't know whether HFE is or has a has a similar sort of um, setup or anything like that. Nick, how would you go around that? I believe so. Well, I think of mentorship in two different categories. There's kind of forced mentorship, and then there's sort of uh, uh, an, I guess what is it a natural uh, inclination for mentorship. So the forced one is obviously any institution that pairs you with somebody else internally, uh, and says, you are going to work with this person and they are going to mentor you. And that can work. That can certainly work. Um, but I think you're right. You do lose some of that confidentiality when it comes to it. You can't be like, my boss is being a jerk, uh, to somebody that you work with. You could, but it's probably not the best decision. And so if you're, you know, wanting to look outward towards other people, uh, in different companies that you can truly, truly get the most out of, I think that's it. You, you also kind of have, um, the situations where you go to grad school, you're looking for somebody that has a similar interest to you to begin with, and you're kind of pairing up with them because of the work that they're doing. And so when it comes to a grad school environment, it's almost forced in a lot of ways because you were looking for someone that is just in your same vein and you have to work with them because you need your degree. Um, and so I, I feel like that's kind of forced too. Then there's the natural ones that form um, as you're working with somebody who might be more senior to you. You can kind of say, hey, look, like I have these questions to ask. Can I can I run them by you? I really, you know, I've, I've had a couple of those along the way too that I really trust. And actually one of them's in chat tonight. Um, and and so I, I really appreciate their opinion on a lot of things um, that I can bring to them and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm in this situation. It's a little awkward if you work together because you can't say this, that, the other thing. It doesn't have to be, uh, especially if they're experiencing some of the same pain points. So that's another way. Just one more point on that. As long as we're talking about the lab, there are mentors in the lab that you can reach out to. Uh, in fact, we have some people in the lab who solely mentor. Um, uh, Barry and myself do more than just mentoring, but we are part of that crew. So please reach out to us. The last one here, what should I expect as an applicant when applying to an entry level or intern generalist position? I'm going to tie in with this next question. 
from uh, the dying sailor on the user experience subreddit. They should say, how should I be applying for UX jobs? So I'm going to read the dying sailor and then kind of reframe the other one. Uh, I'm going to be graduating soon. I'm looking for a junior UX position. How should I be applying for jobs or engaging with recruiters to get an interview? I've only managed to get one interview so far, though a friend said my portfolio was in good shape. Uh, is exactly what they were looking for. Haven't been able to grab anyone else's attention. Sitting down and applying for jobs doesn't seem to be doing it. So do you guys have any tips on how to go about the process for me? So again, how do you get it? And, and how do you get these interviews or apply to the jobs? And um, what should you expect as an applicant, I think, are very, very similar. So let's talk about it. What what do you do from a junior perspective to apply to these jobs? Barry? Well, it's about 20 years since I've sat down and tried to apply for a junior job. But from somebody who's, I guess, on the receiving end of this um, quite a lot now, it's the, you've just got to get, there's, there's that whole, you've just got to keep going and you've got to uh, keep putting yourself out there. So it's, Yes, keep applying for the jobs. It's keep searching, and you know the internet is brilliant for this now. That you can get yourself in the right sort of places to to see the adverts. Talk to recruiters. Um, the more you talk to recruiters and other recruitment agencies, and that they they know you're there, um, there's more of a chance that they will then be able to try and do some matching with you. But then it's going back to when we we do seem to be pushing things like the lab, uh, the digital media lab. Um, um, tonight quite a lot but again get into them sort of conversations get into them sort of communities so hfes cihf wherever you're at in the world there is an ergonomics association near you um, with either a local chapter or a regional group or an online forum or something like that just get talking to people um, i've met more people um interesting people who've got something to offer who i wouldn't normally maybe you wouldn't pick up their CV um, and, pay, and pay as much attention as you do when you meet the person and they've, they've maybe got some interesting ideas or um, or anything like that and they just pique your interest and you say, I'd like to meet, uh, see more of you or, or whatever. So it, there, there is, there's no, for me, there is no um, golden thing here that, that, there's a, that there's, there's a magic trick that will solve this for you. It is hard work. Um, we're looking in a, in a respect that actually the, the UXHF world is still comparatively small. Um, the there is going to be more um, more things out there that, uh, that there's generally certainly in the UK there's more jobs than people out there at the moment. Um, so you just got to keep on keep on pushing yourself out there. Um, don't lose heart; it's still a great place to be. Next yeah, time you do this. yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head. And I think that was the point that I was going to bring up is it, we say it all the time, but it's about who, you know, um, and, and really, I think that's critical for getting into the field because, you know, for me, I don't know about you, Barry, but my first job wouldn't have happened the way it happened if I didn't know somebody that knew somebody. And so it's one of those things where you, um, you really want to get involved in those communities, get involved with other people because you might meet somebody that says, oh, we have an opening over here for a junior position. I'd love for you to join us um, and, you know, just kind of rope you in. Um, and I think really when you're when you're considering what the application process is, if you don't know anybody and you're just playing kind of uh, out of the blue, you're going to get a lot of those, um, you know, hit easy apply on LinkedIn just a million times. Uh, you At that point, it's difficult because you don't have really the portfolio of work to back your, um, like your ability to perform up. Um, and so 
it is one of those things where you really just need to either know somebody or keep banging your head against the wall until you get in. And I hate that that's the way it is. And there's no like mechanism professionally. Um, well, there are in, in the professional organizations, but again, you have to get involved with those. Um, but there's no mechanism that, you know, puts you out of school or out of your uh, design work courses or whatever you're doing and puts you into a job. There's no kind of transition piece. You, it, It's kind of on your own unless you have a good mentor, unless you have a body of work that you can present, uh, unless you know people. Um, so that's kind of it for that question. Great questions tonight. Um, we're going to get to this last part of the show. We just called one more thing. Uh, we're running out of time here, so let's keep it short tonight. Barry, what's your one more thing? So my one more thing is it's the CITF Ergonomics Conference on Monday, which I'm thoroughly looking forward to. It's going to be great to get back to a physical conference. And I thought I was just going to lounge around and go around with my microphone, interviewing people and all that sort of thing and just have a great time. However, with my new responsibilities, I'm now chairing, um, I'm, I'm chairing sessions, I'm delivering, I'm, I'm supporting uh, people delivering keynotes and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, my, my lazy two days of just enjoying the ambiance has, has kind of uh, gone out of the window. Oh man. I'm very excited. I'm excited to see what you come back with. And honestly, I kind of expected all those responsibilities to creep up on you, but not so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you, my, my one more thing this week is um, I it's it's a small win, but it's a win. Uh, I've kind of been in this weird spot with my hobbies recently where I haven't wanted to do much. Um, but this week I we uh, gave my son a large Hot Wheels monster truck for Easter and um I modified it by putting LEDs, like red LEDs in, it's a crocodile monster truck. So you have like, you know, red eyes. So I put red okay. LEDs in the lights and like a green LED pointing down. So it has this green glow below it and a little switch on it. I don't know. It's cool. It's a small win. And no, no one, no other kid has that truck. So that's kind of made me feel good. Anyway, that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, especially the bits about how our minds make decisions, I will go ahead and encourage you to go listen to episode 219, where we talk about mental maps and problem solving. That's actually Barry's first Human Factors Cast episode he was on. So go check that out. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion. You can always join our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletters, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, leave us a five-star review that has a lot of details about why people might like this show. You can always tell your friends about us. Word of mouth really helps us grow. And if you like, if you have the means to, support us on Patreon, buy stuff from our merch store, all that. It's always any links to all of our socials and our website are going to be in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about making big decisions? So if you want to make big decisions, head on down to my Twitter at Baz underscore K or come to the 1202 Human Factors Podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. 
These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.